I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Notable. Welcome to Notable. Welcome to Notable. Podcasts from me, Elizabeth Holker. And me, Stuart McConey, the podcast that delves back into music history and covers all the musical waterfront of genres looking for interesting stories. It does. Would you like to hear some tweets, Stuart, from our listeners? Just random tweets or ones specifically connected with... Notable. Well, yeah, they're connected to Notable. I Good. can read some random tweets as well. If no, you no, want. no. Keep it. Let's keep it tight. What, what are, what are okay. the kids saying about Notable? Since we've nailed the top of this show by now. So, in response to last week's episode, Joseph Watkins has tweeted because we should say. So, Jeff just explained this. We did Albert Isler and yes. Cecil Sharp last week. Yes. But whilst loading the podcast, Jeff was communicating with family about his father, whose name was Arthur. And so the podcast went up as Arthur Isler. So Joseph Watkins is asking if that's Albert's long lost cousin. <laughs> it's Indeed. Not. We were talking quite a lot about Maurice Dancing last week as well, we weren't were. we? So Nigel Rollins is uh, giving me a bit of a, a rap on the wrist for this. He says that, Morris dancers get furious if you refer to them as troops. They're known right. as sides. But I thought, well, where I'm from, they're called troops. But I think you are definitely thinking so, of a thing that is a very different beast, I think. That young dancing. women throwing batons in the air is very, I think, I think died in the wool Morris dancers. Morris men. Yeah. I, I don't know if they're letting women in these days. I hope they are. I think that's an entirely different thing, but yeah, but yeah, but we still called it Morris dancing. We did in Wigan, but it isn't. It's more of a recent invention. Yes, yeah. it's much more recent. Yeah, yeah, more recent, kind of connected to the mines and the factories, isn't it? Yeah. And we were asking if Cecil Sharp was a hero or a villain. And did we get an answer? Well, Circle Music, as he's known on Twitter, he or she, yeah, um, has said, "Well, he's a wonderful hero here in Oxford." Right. Streets named after him, and the Mason Arms HQ in Oxford still flourishing with Morris men because right. that's where Oxford is where Cecil yes. Sharp first encountered Morris dancing, of course. And people saying they've added Albert Isler to their listening list. So, Oof. you know. Wow. And also, last week we were talking about a very rare bit of Albert Isler footage that yeah. the BBC captured and then got rid of. Jazz well, 625 it was, yeah. Yeah, so sidekick Nick has got in touch and said, re-Albert Isler at the BBC, my father-in-law worked for BBC Engineering. He designed the tape-wiping machine. Wow, so sidekick Nick's father-in-law is to blame yeah. for all yeah. this. Yeah, Well, proud in the and family. And if we do that episode about things the BBC wipes, we should have him as a guest. Well, we should, yeah. If indeed he's still around. Yeah, we should, indeed. On this week's podcast, um, we're going to talk about a couple of interesting things. I hope you think they're interesting. Elizabeth, in a moment, is going to lead a little chat about Basil Kirchin, musical phenomenon. Basil Kirchin, 
But I'm going to start by talking about a teenage girl without whom I would say maybe there's a whole swathe of British music that wouldn't exist from The Clash to Steel Pulse, from UB40 to The Police, from Dub to uh, Lover's Rock. A whole subculture of British music wouldn't exist without Millie Small. Right. A teenage girl from... Kingston, Jamaica, who really introduced Jamaican music as we know it to Britain back in the 1960s with that enormous hit, uh, My Boy Lollipop. Are you familiar with My Boy Lollipop? I do know that song, of course. Um, I didn't know much about this story, though. It's so fascinating. Um, What a voice. I was listening back to it. Incredible voice. It's just, she is cut glass, isn't it? It's so kind of crystalline. and And if you... If you look on YouTube, there are a couple of performances of her playing this, but one that comes up is from Finnish television in the 1960s, The Millie Show. She got her own show on Finnish TV, and her performance of My Boy Lollipop, everything that's great, I think, about pop music is in that performance. It's so charming and sweet and joyous. Her singing, her dancing, everything about it is absolutely wonderful. But it's really important, apart from just being a really catchy record, like my grandma bought it, without knowing anything about Scar or Blue Beat or Rocksteady or any of those early Jamaican music forms. But she just bought it because she thought it was a great record. But it is unmistakably the first entree of Jamaican music, well, Jamaican pop music, really, as it were, like that, into the charts. I mean, when the Empire Windrush came over back in the late 1940s with the four or so, 400, 500 people who who became the first Jamaican immigrants to Britain. There were two musicians on board. Famously, Lord Kitchener was on board. And they brought with them kind of calypso and that kind of music. In fact, one of the most famous examples being brilliant, London is the place for me, which appears on the, I think it's the Paddington Paddington or the Paddington 2 soundtrack, I forget now. So there was that, and, and so we'd heard that those sort of strains of that, but the more kind of properly uh, subcultural pop songs, really, if you like. Millie is the first example of that, really cutting through and becoming a big chart hit in Britain. And that is due uh, to the genius of Millie, and also one Chris Blackwell. Island Records. Yeah. Well, maybe that's the place to start. Chris Blackwell, who the story is quite an extraordinary one about how he forms at Island Records. Late 1950s, he is uh, working for Sir Hugh Foote, the Governor-General of Jamaica, Chris Blackwell. is think from a fairly well-to-do family, Chris, in the diplomatic service, working for the Governor-General. And his boat, his pleasure boat, runs aground on a coral reef off Hellshire Beach uh, in Jamaica. Yeah. He's 21, he gets into terrible difficulties, he nearly drowns, and he somehow manages to get to shore, uh, half-drowned, dehydrated, exhausted... And a party of Rastafarian fishermen rescue him. They, they feed him up. They feed him actually with ital food, with you know proper Jamaican sort of soul food. And they feed him up and they rescue him. And this re- is a massive influence on Blackwell, who, who from that point on, onwards really falls in love with and becomes obsessed with indigenous Jamaican culture, not just the sort of, uh, you know, what you might call the, the, the elite history or whatever, if such thing existed, he'd been used to through the diplomatic corps, but he falls in love with Jamaican food, indigenous Jamaican music and the culture of the people, uh, Rastafarianism and, and, and such like. He borrows 10 grand from his parents 
and he launches a record label that he thinks he wants to show the world what Jamaican music has to offer and at this point it will be a lot of the things we were saying earlier Calypso and, and such like but he wants to show it to the world he calls it Island Records named after Jamaica itself and after uh, Island in the Sun. Do you know that song which by yeah, Harry Belafonte? Yeah. This is yeah. my island. In... So he names <laughs> it after that. And by 1962, he's put out 26 singles and two albums, which have been cult hits among people who are really interested in what we would call now world music. But nothing's doing, they're not troubling the chart scorers. Nothing's doing chart-wise. And then he chances upon singing uh, in Jamaica, uh, a young girl, a 15 at the time, Millie Small, who's made a handful of singles in Jamaica herself, and he thinks she's got it. That kid's got it in classic showbiz stuff. And he really, he's very respectful. Uh, he becomes even more so, but he's very respectful about this situation. He assumes legal guardianship of Millie, but with her mother's consent, because he says, I think your daughter is a real fabulous talent and could be a star. So he assumes legal guardianship of her. She was from a really, um, well, she was born into pov- extreme Absolute poverty, wasn't she? Absolute poverty, we should she say was that, one yes. Of, it was, one, was she one of 13 children? 13 kids. Yeah. And her father worked on the local plantation, didn't he? He was a plantation worker. I mean, it is like, we're talking the early 1960s, but if you look at the circumstances of her life, you you, you know, it was probably a way of life, for better or worse, and I would suggest in a lot of ways for worse without romanticising it, that's probably been unchanged for hundreds of years. We're probably, you know, yeah. I think Millie Small and her family probably lived like that, and her class and her people had lived like that for hundreds of years, yeah. yeah. It was a thatched roof shack, wasn't Absolutely, it, they, yeah. She yeah. grew up in, yeah. Which is, you know, which is what we should sort of understand housing types in, you know. I mean, Mar- Marley sang a lot about, about that, about how people lived in yeah. Jamaica at the time, and still do. But yes, you're absolutely right, we should say that, that he comes to her mum and says, look, I think your, your daughter has, has potential, he assumes legal guardianship of her, and brings her to England mm. on economy class BOAC flight, uh, along with the guitarist and arranger, Ernest Wranglin, who is one of the house band at uh, Studio One Kingston, the famous Studio One, sometimes called the Motown of the West Indies. They go to Forest Hill. That's got to be a shock after Jamaica, hasn't it, Forest Hill? I don't know, maybe not. Depends depends what the weather was like in Forest Hill that year. They go to Forest Hill, the London suburb of Forest Hill, and they do a cover of an existing song, Barbie Gaye's 1956 flop, My Boy Lollipop. Okay, this is where myth starts to take over. There's a long-standing rumour that Rod Stewart plays the harmonica break on My Boy Lollipop. Okay. You know, the, Did you start that one? Too? I, this is not one that I started. <laughs> this is one that you'll hear people saying, um, in the same way that you'll hear people saying that Jimmy Page, because he was a session guitarist, played on like every every hit of the 1960s. But people say um, Rod Stewart played the harmonica on My Boy Lollipop, the harmonica break, which is absolutely untrue. It is Pete Hogman, who you may know, Elizabeth, through his work with the Pete Hogman blues band and Hoggy in the Sharp Tones. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he yeah, says, I've got them all, got all yeah, those got records. Them. I knew you were massive. You, <laughs> I'm you. a Hogman completist. He said, the backing for my Bob Lollipop was recorded live in the studio. I played harmonica and Ernest Wrangling played a black Gibson. Several people have claimed to play that harmonica break. I can promise you it was me, recorded in London. What it might be is that both of them were in a band, a UK blues band, Rod Stewart and Pete Hogman, were in a UK blues band called The Fifth Dimension. And that might be why. And apparently also they look quite similar. So Pete Hogman must have had one of those kind of feather cuts and a tartan scarf as well <laughs> it's a it's a look i still like to rock well it's a good no it's a classic well 
it's been doing the business for Rod the Mod for 80 years now, hasn't it? At least. Yeah. Um, he thinks this has got hit written all over it. The horn arrangements, Wrangling's brilliant guitar playing, the harmonica break that we talked about, and this kind of giggly schoolgirl vocal by my boy Lollipop, which is both... It's just so cute, isn't it? You know what I mean? I mean, you say schoolgirl vocal now in our cynical times, yeah. it's like, oh, I... But it is just... It's, it's a song yeah. that's got one foot in the playground, I think, as well as one foot like, yeah. in the dance It's song. youthful joy, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Exactly. And playfulness. And he said, the reverb came from a cupboard in the back of the studio we used as a live chamber. And it was a minute and 51 records. Important for people who are putting playlists together. Uh, sorry, a minute and 51 seconds long original demo. He said, so it's a short record. And he said, I didn't put it out on my island label because I knew it was going to be big and we didn't have the resources to handle it. And uh, so he licensed it to Fontana, part of Philips. And it was a huge hit. He was absolutely right. It was a huge hit all over the world. And he said, I really wanted to look after Millie. So I went everywhere with her, which took me into the mainstream of the record industry. So in many ways, he reckons that, you know, without Millie Small, there's no U2, there's no Bob Marley and the Wailers, there's no Roxy Music, there's none of the other huge stars through Island Records. Because he says wow. he doesn't think Island Records would have got off the ground or been a big concern, and he wouldn't have the skills to do it without what he got from the business of promoting Millie Small uh, yeah. around the it's world. So, did it was it something like three hundred thousand copies in the first few weeks or something? Something like, like um, it was number two. I know that I know overall it sold nearly seven million copies. Yeah. worldwide. Yeah. Um, because she was it went massive. It, she was global, wasn't it, it she? It was number two here. It was number two in America. It was number one in Ireland. It was number one in Australia. Seven million copies, you say, around the world. And yeah, and so that is the birthplace of the la the label that, you know, Bob Marley, Roxy Music, Traffic, Grace Jones, U two, that's the biggies. Also you wouldn't have cult people like Richard Thompson and Nick Drake either. Arguably, okay. but for Millie Small. And this is a really interesting thing. Didn't she do a Nick Drake? She did a Nick Drake cover, this didn't is, she? Is that what you're coming No, to? well, no, thank Space you for pointing it out. She later covered a really obscure, even by his standards, Nick Drake song called yeah. Mayfair in a Scar version yeah. as a single. And the B-side was called Enoch Power. Yeah, and people preferred the B side, didn't they? Well, yeah, yeah. And it kind of, it kind of, it kind of made her credible again. Amongst those people we call crate diggers, yeah, that's a one yeah. to dig out of crate. But Joe Boyd, you know, Joe Boyd, who later produced Nick Drake, his Witch Season yeah. productions, intimately involved with Ireland. He said this thing that's absolutely, absolutely lovely. I think he said, "We licensed it to Philips. It became an international hit. Pepsi Cola invited Millie on a promotional tour of Africa and Latin America." Chris came along as Millie chaperone. We enjoyed every minute. And at the end of the tour, a hero's welcome awaited Millie in Kingston. The motorcade wound its way through cheering and flag-waving crowds. It was the biggest day in Jamaica since their independence. Oh, wow. Finally, they get to Millie Small's mum's shack. She jumps out of the limo and runs towards her mum with open arms. And the older woman, and this is, this is so touching, backed away fearfully a little from the most famous person now in Jamaica and oh. bowed. She bowed to her own daughter. Oh, Welcome home, Miss Millie, she said, holding on to her hands. Oh. And in that moment, apparently Chris Blackwell was mortified because he thought, I've estranged this woman and her daughter. They're not just mum and daughter anymore because she's become such a big star. And he said, and that was why that's why people say that in years to come, Blackwell had a reputation for being an incredibly protective manager you know of his charges not all managers are okay. but he apparently treated his he always treated people under his wing really well 
because this had taught him, you know, these experiences with Millie. So he was always a very decent and caring and humane manager. He sent her to stage school, didn't he, when she came to the UK? That's right. He got, he got some kind of formal dance and theatre training. That's right. But it, and it's weird how she didn't maintain the success of, you no. know, for the song to be so big. Yeah. But she didn't maintain anything at all, did she? Nothing. No. I mean, I mean, really did not, you know, it never repeated anything like it at all. But the legacy of it is, of course... We hear that British people get their first taste of what you could call them blue beat, or, yeah. or that. and then you know from then on, you know reggae music through the sixties yeah. and seventies. Jamaican music is an absolute crucial part of British subculture, from the skinheads to the punks, even through to the mainstream success of the Police and UB Forty. My grandma bought My Boy Lollipop. You know, as I say, yeah. Without My Boy Lollipop, it's possible the whole and beautiful kind of intermelding of the two cultures wouldn't. So, um, yeah. So Millie Small, good old Millie. We salute yeah. you, Millie. I quite liked her. The other, what's the other one? Was it? Is it Sweet William? Yes, there's one called Sweet, Sweet William, which is Sweet nice. Sweet William. That's quite a big tune, isn't it? Because I was quite surprised reading about it that those subsequent records she made that are still good and her voice still sounds fantastic and there's still all the energy and sweetness and she, she playfulness a, and all that sort of thing. Yeah, she had a career. It may, be that, it may be that, as often happens with people like her and, and Ellen Shapiro, it's very much associated with the youthfulness and the charm of that moment, isn't it? And, yeah. And, it's, and you yeah, can't yeah. recapture And also it's about what the country was going through at the time, stuff like that. And, and we know what Britain felt like at the time. But um, before we move off this, as our little interval turning point, mm. notable exception. Yeah, I can't believe we've actually got one. Thought of one. A sort of notable exception is this. I think a one-hit wonder is a notable exception. But as you've just said, I don't think Millie Small is a one-hit wonder because she had a couple of minor hits later on. And if you want okay. to be ruthless about this... Who's making these rules? The Guinness Book of Hit Singles, and I oh, right, and okay. I think that's a good source. They state that a proper one-hit wonder is someone, an artist or a band, who have one number one hit and then nothing ever again. They never get a chart entry again. Now, by that okay. token, twenty no twenty fifteen or so years later, in nineteen seventy eight seventy nine, two more Jamaican schoolgirls have a proper one-hit wonder when in a very similar really a very similar instance and a very similar experience to My Boy Lollipop, they caught a record called Uptown Top Ranking, Althea and Donna, which again, almost overnight, captures the imagination of the British people and they fall for it. And people who would not normally ever buy a reggae record or even a pop record buy it and it goes to number one. But they never have another chart entry again. Yeah. And so I think that counts as a proper one-hit wonder. Now, I want to know what you people out there in the notable universe feel about this. Am I being too Stalinist about this? Uh, well, so are we saying top 40 or top 100? Oh, I'd say top 40. Top 40. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Maybe never yeah, get yeah. in the top 40 again, yeah. Because sometimes you see Billboard, you know, they'll say, yeah. oh, it was in the Billboard 500. Well, but we, that's America though, isn't it? We talk about the top <laughs> yeah. 40, not the hot 100, don't we? So I would yeah. say, okay. I would say it's top 40 in the one UK. number one and then never get into the top 40 again. So if how do you feel about that? Do you share my Stalinist hardline I do. attitude? Do yeah. You? yeah, and you know what? I find it confusing when people don't stick to it. You know, know when people say this is our hit, and you're like, yeah. no, you had other, you actually had other hits. I know. 
I find that, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that all the way. Like in America, Dex's Midnight Runners are regarded as a novelty act because the only hit they ever had there, I'm not sure if it's a one-hit wonder, but the only hit they ever had, had in America was Come On Eileen. Yeah, so whereas okay. we think of them as being this really important subcultural thing in Britain, critically revered, you know, Kevin Rowland's a bit of a sort of hero. Of They just think it was those gypsies who dressed up in funny clothes and had a novelty. So the Americans think of Dexies, like we might think yeah. of, was it Rednecks and Cotton-Eyed Joe? That's, that's, right, okay, that's what they think okay. of. But anyway, yeah, let us yeah. know what you think about one-hit wonders. Are we being too harsh? And do you have a particular favourite one? Remember, maybe not mentioned as well. We're at NotablePod on Twitter and you can find us on Instagram as well. There's a reason that we have a chart because that is, we define what a hit is by the charts, don't we? Well said. What else makes a hit? Well said. And that's why people <laughs> used to say Top of the Pops, the beauty of Top of the Pops back in the day was that its only criteria for inclusion was are you in the charts or not? Which is why back when the yeah. charts were crazy and brilliant, you would get Arthur Mullard next and Hilda Baker next to Black Sabbath, next to the Supremes and all that, you know, so... Absolutely. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Okay, what are you going to tell me about, Elizabeth? So, funny, Stuart, in your story that you mentioned Island Records and mm -hmm. Jimmy Page, because they both crop up in my story as well. Okay. Which is the story of Basil Kirchin. So, if people don't know that name, this is the man who Brian Eno called the founding father of ambient music. I know. He's, which is some praise in the ambient world. Mm. I mean, that's the godfather. Yeah. Identifying the founding father. Uh, so Basil Kirchin is often considered as having written the first ambient album in 1971. That's his Worlds Within Worlds album. This is eight years before Music for Airports, mm -hmm. you know, which is often considered the kind of landmark ambient release, isn't it? Yeah. But his artistic career, Basil Kirchin's artistic career, was by no means set in that direction at all. No. He started out, he was born in Blackpool in 1927. From the age of 13, he was making his name as a star drummer in the big band era. Yeah. Uh, his father, Ivor Kirchin, was a big band leader, so Basil played with him as a teenager. During the war, they had a residency at the Paramount Theatre, which, which was on Tottenham Court Road in London. So um, Basil would kind of play there for eight hours a day, and then they slept in the underground mm. um, in the tube stations, as a lot of people did, of course, during the Blitz. Mm -hmm. The Ivor Kirchin band, they were actually produced by George Martin, yeah. Um, which is odd considering that in some ways their careers kind of ran vaguely ran a parallel, which we'll hear a bit more about in a moment. But um, also at that time, Basil Kirchin, I mean, he was touring with Sarah Vaughan. He really was a big star in that world. He was twice voted drummer of the year in The Enemy. 
Sean Connery and Elizabeth Taylor were fans of his work yeah. uh, with big bands. So he was, he was quite a kind of big star in that world. Then in the late 50s, he makes a trip to India, mm-hmm. which just goes to show how ahead of his time Completely. he was. Completely. And I've been, re- I've been reading around a little bit and just reading some interviews with him and, you know, things that people have written about him. There's not much written about why he decided to go. Other than that, you know, he was this maverick character. He was interested uh, in spiritual terms yeah. and what was going on in, in India. I guess that was beginning to be in the air at that time, but it wasn't really in the late 50s so much, was it? No, I think he was just a cool dude who was interested, like, you know, the forum. I mean, there are people like that and um, and Eden Arbez and people like that who, before it became fashionable in the late 60s, were, were tuned into yeah. Eastern East, what we might rudely call Eastern mysticism. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he spent five months in the Ramakrishna temple, which is on the river, uh, banks of the river Ganges, uh, exploring music and mysticism. He was basically fed up of playing other people's music, which is, I guess, what you're doing for like hours and hours every day, day in, day out, isn't it, when you're Mm. in a big band? He wanted to write his own music. And I suppose now we know that the root of a lot of ambience in music is in traditional music from places like India and also uh, Japan. Um, It's kind of trance-like and hypnotic and conscious of, I, I guess this is the ambience in it, it's conscious of and in conversation with its surroundings and the natural environment the music was very kind of aware of 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 its environment so this is what fed into Basil's uh thinkings at that time and ideas around what he wanted to do next with his musical career his travels ended really sadly he was in Australia and a cargo net carrying all these big band recordings fell into the sea fell into the sea yeah which is so unlucky, isn't it? But also, why was he carrying them around with him? Just, <laughs> Just could he not have left them with his neighbour? But it's interesting. Oh. That I think that kind of prompts him, because as you say, he goes on to make music that partly ambient, music concrete, really exciting film yeah. scores and things like that. But I think all that, all his stuff falling in the seas are kind of a, oh well, say goodbye yeah, to all really that. Re- yeah, it's really symbolic. Yeah, it's really symbolic. Say goodbye to all that. I'm going to start doing this incredibly exciting new forms of music. Yeah. Though, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, people have said that he was traumatised by it, but like you say, maybe it was actually just the end of an era and a kind of significant turning point and forced him to do something else. He came home, uh, back to the UK. His father had a residency in Hull at the time. And this is where I first found out about Basil Kirchin when Hull was uh, City of Culture in 2017, Mm -hmm. because I loved that year of culture. They did, it was so interesting just how many, I suppose, maverick thinkers and creatives have come from Hull. Genesis Peorage and uh, Throbbing Gristle Chris formed Cozy, there, didn't yeah. they? Who, uh, yeah. If not actually from Hull, although Cozy is, isn't she? Was sort of a, around the place, yeah. Yeah, just that it was kind of this place that was far enough away from the mainstream that um, these sort of weird artistic That's movements That's what Philip could. Larkin, that's what Philip, why Philip Larkin loved it. Philip Larkin is the librarian yeah. at Hull University. He said that when people found out how difficult it was to get to Hull, when journalists found out how difficult it was to get to Hull who were coming to interview him, they would just stay on the train and go to Newcastle and talk to Basil Bunting in Newcastle instead. <laughs> um, yeah, it's but at it the was, end of the no, line, isn't it? It, it was that they, they because Kirchin's reputation has grown and grown and grown. In, we're going slightly ahead of ourselves, but has grown and grown and grown in the last couple of decades. Again, we have a lot here. Johnny Trunk of Trunk Johnny Records. Trunk. There's a lot to thank yes. you. But when we He's got to Hull City story. of Culture, they celebrated him with performance and stuff yeah. like that. But again, slightly ahead. He starts to change his music when he's in Hull, doesn't he? He does, yes. 
Um, so he comes back to Hull. He's uh, sort of flitting between Hull and he also marries a Swiss woman as he does. well. And he spends some time in Switzerland. Um, and like you mentioned before, he started to experiment with tape, which we've yes. mentioned in a few of our stories, mm-hmm. Music Concrete. We've mentioned it talking about um, Pierre Henri, haven't we? And this is basically recording sounds and then stretching them, slowing them down, flipping them, playing them blackwards, all that kind of thing. And this really plays into the spiritual ideas that he'd explored and adopted and explored in India because as the title of the record, Worlds Within Worlds, Mm. suggests, if you record, and we've mentioned this kind of before as well, but if you record, for instance, like a bumblebee, and then you slow that down, you can see that there's a whole world of other sounds and frequencies in that sound. Yeah. And And I guess, you know, if you're spiritualizing this, then... Basil Kirchin actually believed that you could almost access a parallel universe through stretching these sounds. It's like that idea... quite a high concept. Well, no, it's the idea... It's that philosophical idea of to be able to see the universe in a grain of sand, isn't it? It's about infinity. It's about that. And he said if you slowed down music hundreds and hundreds of times, they would become like boulders and mountain ranges of sound and they would become like a a second of music could become like a... A, a Beethoven symphony slowed down. If you want yeah. to hear a beautiful example of this that I really love, do you know the do you know the piece modern piece Slow Motion Blackbird by Chris Thomas, yeah. Yeah. where they, he slows down a blackbird over and over again, and that that becomes yeah. this meditation on aging and stuff. But yeah, he was saying if you slow things down, the grain of it all becomes massive and apparent to you, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also just that all is not what it seems, is mm-hmm. it? You know, what we can hear and capture on a tape in the in the second is, you know, there's so much more in there, basically. Yeah. So that was the approach that he started to take using these music concrete techniques. He got a Nagra, they're in common usage at the BBC, aren't they? They were the standard thing before digital recorders, weren't they? Yeah. And uh, he started to record natural sounds, so insects and, and streams and waterfalls and things like that around Hull. And he started to make these really experimental soundtracky like kind of film soundtracky type pieces of music actually initially music for imaginary films he called it didn't he they didn't have he didn't have a picture to work with they developed into a series of library music albums which did actually end up being used in commercials and that sort of thing uh he was working for the dewolf music library at the time and that's when he worked with jimmy page yes and also mick ronson who of course uh was in hull at that time as well and then in the mid-60s he starts to get commissioned to write music for actual films yeah so he writes the soundtracks for uh, Catches If You Can with the Dave Clark Five, yeah. uh, Primitive London, and the classic horror, the one he's probably most famous for, isn't it? The Abominable Doctor Fibes. The Abominable Doctor Fibes. The Abominable Doctor Fibes. And I think he might do Doctor Fibes Rides again, the sequel as well, which are both brilliant. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They are, starring Vincent Price. If you listen to these records, you can hear, you can, they're just so strange, aren't they? And again, it's that thing, because he was so disappointed that people didn't kind of latch on to what he was doing. Yeah. But they st- they sound so weird even today, yeah. I think. The Worlds Within Worlds record, you can hear... That's the, that's the strangest one, yeah. It is, yeah. And you can hear, yeah, a lot of his library music stuff is a little bit more accessible, isn't it? It's got a kind of kitsch, sort of laid-back yeah. feel to it. But um, yeah, Worlds Within Worlds, you can hear that sound that I guess you know, paved the way for ambient music as we know it, you know, when Brian Eno arrived with it. But it's natural sounds interacting, isn't it, with the yeah. performer and with the, the space that the that the piece yeah. is made and um, recorded. So I guess, yeah, there's that kind of alignment between the environment and 
the music. Yeah. And that, I guess that's what Brian Eno um, yes. you that, know, that's was the thing inspired Eno, by. That's the thing Eno was interested in, his, his more abstract stuff, as you say. I mean, his, his library music is lovely. The stuff that Johnny Trunk has, has put is. out, as you said, prim, Primitive London, Abstractions of the Industrial North, Particles, they're all lovely. Yeah. And they're a bit less out there than the Worlds Within Worlds series, yeah. He also taped the sounds of uh, the children that his wife was teaching. She yeah. taught autistic children, didn't she? She did. And he was really moved by the sounds that they made yeah. to communicate the yeah. way that they would kind of express themselves vocally. He believed that had a really particular yeah. kind of resonance, an emotional um, resonance that he'd not heard anywhere else. So there, that the, the work that he did with that is kind of especially affecting as well, isn't it? And especially sort of, mm, yeah, it's just not like anything you've heard before, no, I suppose. No. Then, this is where Island Records comes into it, because Richard Williams, who was working at Island Records, signed him in the 70s. And he was the person who asked Brian Eno to write the liner notes for the follow-up to World with, Worlds Within yeah. Worlds. He'd liked the first one so much that he wanted him to write another one, and he did, and Brian Eno wrote the liner notes for that record. Then, like you say, he went on to write a few other albums as well, Abstractions of the Industrial North, Quantum and Particles. They didn't do well commercially. Didn't, no. He was really disappointed by this. He stayed in Hull, but lived around the Hessel Road area, which I think was especially run down at the time. Yeah, it's a famous bit of Hull, isn't it? Hessel Road, often written about. But yeah, he lived quite quietly in Terry Stice there, didn't he? He did, and in relative obscurity yeah. for 30 years, until Johnny Trunk came along in the 90s yeah. and started to release his music. Yeah. And by that point, he was already quite ill, wasn't he? He had cancer, I yeah. think, and yeah. had to have quite a big part of his face removed. Um, yeah. And... He died in 2005, and I guess it's it wasn't really until City of Culture that people yeah. really started to celebrate his work. I think. I think a bit before that, to be to be honest, I think Johnny Trunk, Johnny Trunk, sort of in the 90s, brought him back. I, I mean, I, that's when I started to get him early on, and I, I used to play him on my Freak Zone show when he was still alive because Johnny had put out Particles and Abstractions of the Industrial North and Primitive London. But I, so I think, but it, okay. the. the Certainly, he was celebrated in a, a big way at the City of Culture. But I think Johnny and and people had, had sort of brought him back into, you know, he was he was around again. Johnny was going to visit him, yeah, talking to him. And I don't think we ever actually had Basil on the Freak Zone, but we certainly played his records. But you're right. But there's this very celebratory thing that they yeah. did with Will Gregory and Sean O'Hagan from the High Llamas and Bob Stanley, wasn't there in Hull? Yeah. And I imagine you can find bits of that. And there's as, a film as, uh, about him now as well. There is indeed. There's a film about him. Yeah. So there he goes, yeah. If you Yeah, so Basil Kirchin, yeah, pioneer. If you don't know his stuff, it's fascinating, yeah. There's a, a lot of it about, we can't play it on this podcast for copyright reasons. Uh, we would be sent to prison forever. But uh, that doesn't apply to you, so check it out online. Actually, some of it's not that different from Millie Small's My Boy Lollipop. Some well, of the he understood ones, pop, yeah, he didn't did he? do some pop, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. His back catalogue is in, is incredible. It's just vast and, like you say, so varied. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. He's such an interesting character, and just unlike so, it's it's weird to me that somebody like that, who's so kind of restless creatively, could live in obscurity like he did. And I just, yeah, well, I don't know. It's, it's quite sad to think how frustrated he must have well, been. Well, like the Delia Derbyshire story, people that weren't that interested in what he was doing because it was a bit unusual, and so he just kept himself to himself yeah. in his later years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, bless him, okay. Basil Kirchin. So we'll be back next week with two more stories. Yeah. Also, we're going to be we're going to be live again, Stuart. We're going on the road in a couple of weeks. 
I've got my notable suitcase packed now, ready really? for whenever we get yeah. called up, ask for gigs, yeah, with my pan stick. If you're going to the Timber Festival... Which is our favourite festival. Over the first weekend in July in the National Forest. We will be there, won't we? We will, yeah. On the 3rd of July, we're performing, yeah. aren't we, Jeff? Producer Jeff. It is. We're going to be Saturday. doing... And if you don't know Timber, it's lovely. It is lovely, and we're going to be doing something outdoorsy, naturally related that we haven't quite decided yet, but there'll be two stories from that milieu that we talk about. Yeah, and we'll even have a notable exception. <laughs> ah, we will. We've thought one in advance. You can bet your life. So come up and say hello if you <laughs> come up and say hello if you're going to Timber. If not, it will be available soon after that event uh, to download and listen to. But um, in the meantime, download, subscribe, keep in touch, keep in touch at Notable, and we'll see you soon. Yeah, see you soon. Notable the podcast. <laughs> hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.